You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they are talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you are black or not black. This week on the podcast, we are talking about France Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, which is a classic seminal work of philosophy and uh, psychoanalysis and a bunch of other stuff. So we're going to be talking about that, and how are we going to do it? We're going to talk about why I chose to read the book this week. Then we're going to do a little chapter breakdown, which will be me going through the chapters I like enjoyed and thought there was something interesting to talk about in. And then we will do a little overview of what I thought in the book in general. Okay. And yeah, we're not going to be breaking new ground on this book, right? Fanon's been talked about by tons of people he's been studied so i'm just going to be picking out things i think are interesting and that's it um okay so first of all why did i choose the book number one i've been meaning to read this book for well over a decade uh it was like the last big book missing from my um from the books that i've been meaning to read that's a complete lie it's 100% lie i'm still missing tons of books but it's one of them okay so it's one i can cross off the list of like books and writers that I've been I've been uh, meaning to read. Okay. The second reason is that I recently read C. Riley Snorton's Black on Both Sides and Fanon is mentioned throughout the book. Uh, it gets tons of references, so it kind of was just floating around in my head that I should read it. And then the third reason was I had it on my shelf and I had it on my shelf because my mother suggested that we read the book together. So I'd already purchased it, and it was just sitting there. And the fourth reason that we're talking about it on the podcast, so those first three reasons are more of why I read the book. The fourth reason of why are we talking about it on this podcast today is because last week I read a romance novel, and it was so bad that I couldn't um, discuss it on the podcast. It was too bad to be discussed on the podcast and I just felt like I don't want to give a negative review to something and I don't want to be mean for no reason and I I did want to support a black writer so I bought that romance novel and read it and I'm happy to do that but it feels it would just be mean to do to, to review that book which was very bad and I'm trying to you know, within the context of what it is, I think it was bad. But I will say that in general, I don't understand romance novels. I, I don't get the appeal. They seem to fall into three categories, at least the ones I've read. One of those categories is what this was in, which was basically like erotica. And um, I can go elsewhere for my erotica, I guess. And another category would be chivalry. These These novels in which like the male protagonist is this idealized version of um heterosexual masculinity where he's you know i don't know like muscular and strong and does some kind of man job but also 
uh, sensitive and I don't, you know, holds doors open or something, whatever, that guy. Okay, so that seems to be another one. And then the third one seems to be like a straight-up love story. And, and I guess I'd be open to a romance novel that's a straight-up love story. And I have read some that are straight-up love stories and liked liked them well enough. But overall, the genre is just probably not for me. But hey, if you enjoy it, that's, that's you. All I know is that I couldn't review that book this week and not be rude about it. So, uh, that's another reason why we're talking about France Fanon. Okay. I guess that's a good segue, as good a segue as any, because the thing about Franz Fanon, the thing about Franz Fanon is, he's an intellectual, this book is difficult, and the whole thing was, last week we read C. Riley Snorton's Black on Both Sides, and this week I wanted to read something that was easier, and instead I'm reading something that is adjacent in terms of difficulty. This is just as difficult as uh, last week's book, although... The writing is clear, but we'll cover that later. So, all right, so what we're going to do now is just go through the chapters, um, not all of them. There were nine chapters. I'm going to talk about four or five of them, and uh, a couple of those just very briefly, and just talk about the ideas I thought were interesting in each, just what popped out to me, all right? So, uh, the first chapter is called The Black Man and Language, and this is my favorite chapter in the whole book. Uh, I like the idea that's put forward at the beginning, and that's a very popular idea now or it's an idea that's been popularized or uh, talked about a ton in pop science and science and and tons of different types of work and that's the idea that consciousness is realized through language um a couple weeks ago on the podcast i read a an essay by gujiwa tiango in which he was talking about the importance of teaching african children in their indigenous languages so that they learn how to think and experience the world in that language and also because their mother tongue is that language it'll be easier for them to learn things in that language but the whole idea being that your consciousness is shaped by language and so Fanon puts forward this idea that the more that black folks are taught and learn in French and the book or English uh, the wider they become like you're assimilating the language and so you become the language, and as you become the language, you become the culture. It's a very interesting idea, and I like this quote that he used to talk about this, which was a Paul Valery quote. Uh, he said, Paul Valery called language the God gone astray in the flesh. But so anyway, all of this is just very interesting ideas, and this idea that uh, language assimilates you into the culture. Okay. Now, there has been some resistance to this idea in a way. There's uh, the fact of, for instance, in English, so I really don't know much about Creole or French, which is what Fanon talks about. But in English, there is African-American vernacular English, of course, and there have been uh, movements towards getting that recognized as a, at the very least, a dialect with its own rules and grammatical structures and things like that. And um, it reminded me of this quote from a Walter Mosley book couple different quotes from a Walter Mosley book. So Walter Mosley writes the, one of the series he writes is Easy Rollins, and Easy Rollins is a um, private detective of sorts, whatever. But in one of the books, he's talking to uh, to someone from his neighborhood, and the guy's talking in this kind of like, let's call it like college-educated fashion. Nothing worse than those college-educated folks. And he says, uh, Easy Rollins says, a man not ought to forget how his people talk. And, a di and in a different book, the same character, Easy Rollins, is talking to a recurring character, Jackson. 
And Jackson's like this really smart dude from around the way. And everybody knows that he went to college. And uh, Easy says to him, did you ever get that degree from UCLA? And Jackson says, shit, motherfuckers wanted me to study some kind of language. Man, I walk on the ground and I talk like my people talk. So this idea of like keeping the way your people talk alive and not assimilating into, let's call it, standard American English is a thing. That being said, for most written language, books, etc., they're generally written in standard American English. And a lot of people who try to write in vernacular have failed. White people, tons of them, but also black people too. It's not easy to write in vernacular. And outside of dialogue, it might not even be necessarily a good idea. Not because there's something wrong with it, but just because you might not be able to pull it off. You know, you really got to be a master prose stylist. Like if you're Zora Neale Hurston, sure, but chances are you're not. <laughs> chances are you are not Zora Neale Hurston. So uh, at any rate, that's one aspect of it, right? There's been a little bit of pushback against the assimilation of language, but most of us, when writing, use standard American English for prose. Occasionally in dialogue, we get outside of it, right? Whatever, these are all generalizations. But it started to make me think about um, the reason that hip-hop is so popular. Like I would say, and again, we're dealing in generalizations, so I'm just going to try to be as specific as I can about this generalization. But I would say that for, if you are 40 years old or younger and black and from America, you probably listen to hip hop. And I wonder if one of the things that is so seductive and attractive about hip hop is the fact that it is largely and historically been a completely black language scape controlled by a black consciousness. And if that's one of the reasons why it's, its ability to completely take over the culture uh, is a thing more so than even like blues or jazz or funk or soul or any other type of black music, if that's part of why hip-hop has that staying power is its language component and the fact that that language scape is completely controlled by a black consciousness. I didn't look up to see if anybody's written on that, but I'd really like to know about that and uh, study that further. Okay, but outside of that little idea there, what else did I like in chapter one? I thought chapter one was really funny. And in fact, I wrote, I just want to read my own dorky note here. This opening section is funny. I wonder if Fanny, oh, I wonder if Fanon was funny in conversation. You know, from every picture I've ever seen of Franz Fanon, doesn't look like he'd be the kind of dude who's cracking jokes. But first chapter kind of seems funny. And you could imagine Richard Pryor like doing um, a routine about it, about the guy who's like from the neighborhood or, you know, the hood. And um, he comes back after being away, either going abroad or going to university or something. And he pretends like he doesn't know like what's going on or whatever, you know, he's trying to act aloof or like he's better than folks, but also just acting like, you know, he has no idea about uh, the things that these these Negroes are up to. What are they doing out here? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, 
I could see Richard Pryor doing something like that, or whatever, you know, name your black comic from the last 40 years who's not Richard Pryor, but just because Pryor's the man. So that was that was funny, and I just thought it was overall, that first chapter was funny. And the idea of a traveler going abroad and coming back and showing off, you know, going abroad or going to university, but specifically in this book, Fanon was talking about the idea of uh, people from Martinique, black Martinicans, Martinicians, going to the Metropole, going to Paris, and then coming back and then, you know, suddenly being like, oh, yeah, those folks over there? No, nothing, I don't, what What are they up to? I don't know. Me? I'm I'm Parisian, you know, like that kind of thing. We still see that today. I remember a couple of years ago, there was this whole debate about, like, uh, passports or college degrees, you know, and, like, which one is more important, and... Both of them are, the way they were being presented in that conversation was like, you know, which one is going to separate you more from other folks or whatever. Like, you know, look at me, I travel. Or look at me, I got educated. And now I'm different from them folks over there. And to take it out of um, just like the black world, the specific black American world, this happens in China too. Like just being here in China, you'll see people who speak English well or travel abroad. Or do both and they love to tell you about how they speak English well or have traveled abroad or do both and so it's this whole idea that Fanon talks about about uh, the colonized mind aspiring to be more like specifically for the for black folks trying to be more like the other and the other is what white people so by becoming white you've gained personhood Right. So yeah, I just thought that last part's not funny, but the parts before it were funny in that they kind of resembled things that you would hear a comedian say. Okay. Overall, the book, not a funny book. All right. Chapters two and three, didn't really like these. Uh, gonna zoom right past them. They were about, what was it, black women and white men and black men and white women. And I just didn't think the... the the insights in here were not very uh, timeless, and a lot of Fanon's takeaways about black women would almost be universally switched around and actually be the takeaways most people would say about like black men now. So it was the idea of black, at least chapter two, is like this idea of like black women wanting to marry outside of the race to get their children to be lighter, and how they didn't like black men and all this stuff, and. I, I think statistically it, it would bear out that more that black women have a tougher time getting married than black men do. And I don't know who marries outside of the race more, but I feel like whenever I hear an argument like this now, or like basically in my lifetime, uh, which does not overlap with Fanon whatsoever, this, this argument would be levied towards black men and not black women. So whatever. I just didn't think that the takeaways in chapters two and three were very good. Those weren't the most famous chapters in the book. So yeah, skipping over those chapter four, skipping over that chapter five. So this is a really interesting kind of free for all chapter. And we kind of like follow Fanon's development from like, you know, being a little, a tadpole from a tadpole to a frog. So we get Fanon from like early on and then suddenly becoming conscious of like, Oh snap, I'm black. And like at the bottom of the totem pole. Right. And then, uh, slowly getting his consciousness built up and then through the works of like Amy Cesar understanding negritude and 
kind of uh, realizing like, no, it's good to be black. Like I'm black and there's something to be proud in that, right? There's like, and, and there's like, not just that, but there's a, a, um, a specific standalone thing that is black by itself. Okay, so that's like good, right? We're feeling good now. Yeah, we started out and we're like at the bottom, and then now Cesar is helping uh, raise up our self worth and value. And then, while that's happening in chapter five, we get to Sartre, who has something to say about negritude. He says, In fact, negritude appears as the weak stage of a dialectical progression. The theoretical and practical affirmation of white supremacy is the thesis. The position of negritude as antithetical value is the moment of negativity. But this negative movement is not sufficient in itself, and the blacks who employ it well know it. They know that it serves to pave the way for the synthesis or the realization of the human society without race. Thus, negritude is dedicated to its own destruction. It is transition and not result, a means and not the ultimate goal. So, basically, you've developed this self-worth. You've realized, like, right, it's great to be black. You know, we've done this, we've done that. Here's why this is good. Here's why this is good. And then you start to realize that, you know, negritude, or maybe you want you could substitute in black power or black consciousness, that this is fighting against white supremacy. If white supremacy was the original thesis on which the Western world was founded, and negritude or black power or, you know, any third world decolonization movement or anything like that, if that's fighting against white supremacy, the whole point is so that eventually we'll live in this raceless society that's just perfect harmony. But if that's true, that means then that this negritude that we're like celebrating and that has given me like a sense of self-worth, that it's actually not the end goal. And so I'm only participating in it to also to like bring down white supremacy. That's kind of depressing. And so it, uh, <laughs> so then it, it unmoors Fanon once again, and he's back down to the bottom totem pole. What is it to be black? What does it mean? Black people are only defined in the sense uh, that they are either opposite to or less than or fighting against the other, which is white people. So that's an interesting journey and kind of sad, but a really good point by Sartre and uh, really well explored by, um, by Fanon. Uh, the other interesting part of this chapter is it kind of marks the beginning of the extensive comparison between um, black people and Jewish people that happens throughout the book. And there's enough of it in the book that you can just go read it for yourself and, you know, figure out how you feel about it. But one thing that I liked here, just one quote that I thought that is applicable, certainly to how black people feel, but um, it's Fanon quoting Sartre about Jewish people. And I thought this was applicable to how a black person might feel once they get into white society. He says... Uh, we may say that their conduct, and he's talking about Jewish people, this is Sartre. We may say that their conduct is perpetually overdetermined from the inside. I think that's a really interesting idea. The idea of like, here you are out in the world trying to think of how to act, and you're thinking of how to act 
removed from the situation, right? We're not even going to mention it, but I guess we should mention the whole double consciousness thing. But So you're removed from the situation, watching yourself participate in the society, hoping that you are meeting expectations or performing the correct way, the way you're supposed to perform, the way you're supposed to act, if you're wearing the correct mask while you're out there. So that's that overdetermined from the inside idea. Anyway, the whole point was to point out that there's a lot of Jewish and black comparison starting here and throughout the rest of the book. And this was just one quote that I liked in particular. Okay, so then moving into chapter six, this is the longest and the most influential chapter. It is called uh, uh, The Black Man and um, Psychoanalysis or Psychopathology. So kind of continuing that idea of the black man in society Fannin says on page 122, a normal black child having grown up with a normal family will become abnormal at the slightest contact with the white world. And then later on page 132, so what are we getting at? Quite simply, that when blacks make contact with the white world, a certain sensitizing action takes place. If the psychic structure is fragile, we observe, we observe a collapse of the ego. The black man stops behaving as an actional person. His actions are destined for the other, in parentheses, in the guise of the white man, since only the other can enhance his status and give him self-esteem at the ethical level. I thought this was interesting because me, I'm a biracial black person who grew up largely in the suburbs with black friends, but not in like an all-black community. And even then, when I went to university, my university was very white, it was in Orange County, even then, I felt some of what he's talking about. You know, that it what was the original page 101. Even a normal black child growing up in a normal family will become abnormal with the slightest contact with the white world. Even I felt that, even though I had grown up with one white parent and in a suburban area with uh, plenty of white people, but, you know, plenty of other cultures as well, when I got to my university, it was so white that it was a little bit of a culture shock. It is true that that came on the hills of me leaving my junior college where I was playing basketball and all of my teammates were black. So maybe that contributed to the culture shock. But I just thought this rang true even for someone like me, much less for someone who's coming from an all-black community. I remember on the podcast Knuckleheads, Patrick Beverly you know, so, so like not something that happened like 100 years ago or, you know, 50 years ago or 30 years ago. Patrick Beverly, who's younger than I am, uh, was talking about growing up in, I believe he's from the south side of Chicago. Definitely Chicago, but I, I think it's the south side. And um, leaving to go to university and just being completely culture shocked by what he saw. Just completely culture shocked by what he saw. I always thought that was really interesting, do you know? Because I could definitely relate, but like I grew up in a more varied area than Patrick Beverly, you know. So, or varied, diverse area, whatever. At, at any rate, very good insight by Fannin, obviously. You know, he's kind of good at that. And then, yeah, and then so the rest of Chapter 6 goes on and uh, really discusses that in detail. But I just wanted to touch on that one thing because it was like my personal connection to, to what he was talking about. So, okay, so then after that, there are three more chapters in the book that kind of just wrap the book up, nothing too super insightful. There's a little bit of a discussion about uh, the black man in Adler and the black man in Hegel. Interesting enough, but yeah, like, 
nothing nothing mind-blowing so i wanted to just talk about like the style of how the book is written i thought that the book was really much more digestible than a lot of books i've read that have been translated from french french to english uh, particularly books that are doing cultural criticism or philosophy so i really liked that i had anticipated having a harder time with it and i didn't it was actually a pretty quick read and has some very poetical parts the opening is very poetical and then the ending the book is telling off or getting to the end of it and he says haven't I got better things to do on this earth than avenge the blacks of the 17th century? Century, Is it my duty to confront the problem of black truth on this earth, this earth which is already trying to sneak away? And it kind of, re it kind of reads as a prose poem. Each one of these questions is like its own stanza and then goes down and it keeps going for two full pages. So I really liked that. And then two notes... Uh, that are outside of Fanon about the writing. So one note is I saw somewhere this book described as a an autoethnography. And I can't say that I'm super familiar with this term, but basically it seems like it is a term for qualitative research in which the person who's writing kind of talks about their own experiences. And I hate this term. And I hate this term overall because it seems to be seems to have some kind of negative connotation, kind of implying that the work isn't as valid as other work. That's fine. I don't know about all the different social sciences and different types of autoethnography that are written. I do know that this book could have just, you know, I, I would prefer if it's always just referred to as a work of philosophy. And then we don't have to get into its um, validity as a piece of... Uh, research for social sciences you could just view it as a piece of philosophy and then its validity always works uh, so yeah i really didn't like that and then another thing that kind of kind of irked me a little bit here and i'm kind of curious about this i couldn't really find anything about it i mean it's such a specific thing but yeah so page 131 fanon is discussing Uncle Remus, which is um, a collection of stories from the southern United States. And he writes, Martinique is poor in folklore, and in Fort de France, few children know the stories of Compé Lapine. I don't know French, so I don't know how to pronounce that. hope that's okay. Compé Lapine, okay. The counterpart of Louisiana's Uncle Remus stories. And then there's a little asterisk type thing, and then it down at the bottom of the page has a translator's note. And uh, it says, Joel Chandler Harris was from Georgia. But it is interesting for Fanon scholars to know that Fanon was not very rigorous in his scholarship. And I honestly found this to be baffling that this would be written here. So... Here, here's, let me take you through why I don't understand this. First of all, we're on page 131. If Fanon's been doing a poor job of being rigorous in his scholarship, uh, certainly we would have ran into this problem earlier when he's quoting all kinds of things that are like legitimately important or um, academic or even intellectual. Here, this is just a basic fact, right? So like, 
an editor at the time, because this translation is a modern translation, but an editor at the time could have caught this, a copy editor, a proofreader, somebody else could have caught this error and said to Fanon, um, you know, by the way, Joel Chandler Harris is not from Louisiana. The fact that you think he's from Louisiana is an absolute travesty. Please, please change this. No, I mean, they probably wouldn't say that. So, um, you know, it, it just seemed kind of weird to say that this is like an example of not rigorous scholarship. It's just like a kind of bad fact checking. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, you're a translator. It's not your job to point out to us if he's not a rigorous uh, scholar. Just note that he made an error. And if he keeps making errors throughout the book, we can come away with the conclusion that Franz Fanon is not very rigorous in his scholarship, right? We don't need you to lead us to the to the side of the river, we can, we can find it ourselves. So I didn't like that. And then the third thing is, is that this is something that's been levied at other black writers before. In fact, I've even gotten published in a a literary journal, uh, whose name is rigorous and it's, it comes from the criticism levied at black writers that they are not rigorous enough in their writing. So it's like a common type of, you know, insult that's been given before and I would think that someone like this translator who is Richard Philcox who translates for his wife who's a black Caribbean writer uh, named Maurice Conde I would think that he would be kind of aware of that so for all these reasons I just didn't really understand that note you know it just felt kind of weird to be there right or wrong you know if he's if this were your commentary if he's writing a commentary on France Fanon I wouldn't say like hey you're wrong for saying that if you're doing a commentary on Fanon and uh, you want to point out the fact that he wasn't rigorous in his scholarship and this would be one of your reasons that he didn't get this banal fact correct in on page 131 of his seminal work okay but as a translator to just pop this in here for no reason seems like i don't i don't even know what it seems like just weird um so yeah didn't like that did not like that but that's got nothing to do with the book okay enough on that enough ranting about that one little thing um all right so i was very happy to have finally read this book which is another one of those gigantic works of black literature or scholarship or intellectualism um so i can cross it off the list i still have other ones i still have other ones uh off the top of my head i know i've never read steve biko and i I need to read him um but yeah all right so i read this one it was really good not as hard to get through as i thought it would be and offered tons of insights and tons of stuff that's still relevant today unfortunately but definitely after reading it you know i understand that c riley snorton book a little bit better and I have some things to think about, like that hip-hop question, which I'd really like to know the answer to. So this is good. Uh, I think next week on the podcast, I'm going to be discussing a collection of essays by Stanley Crouch. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I'll either be discussing that or 
if I can find something that is not nonfiction, I will read it and discuss that. But yeah, so it looks like the plan will probably be Stanley Crouch's collection of essays, and I'll try not to be super negative about them. All right, until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.